Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, the intersection of technology, climatology, and ornithology. A birder's eye view of what climate change means to Brooklyn's birds and why it matters. I told my friend the other day there was going to be fallout, and he got very worried. I said, mm. bird fallout. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but. We'll hear about a play that takes on Alzheimer's with humor and how one artist whose work is on display now at Brick sees the Black Lives Matter movement in mothers and sons. It's been a hot minute since the UN's startling IPCC report on climate change, which gave humanity about 14 years to get our act together if we really do mean what we say about halting the rise in temperature. Studies like these make citizen scientists out of all of us. We pore over data sets and graphs and talk about recycling and shorter showers, but all those things might not be enough if we overlook the nature that's already around us. So let's talk about some citizen scientists you may have overlooked. Birders. Now, these folks are not your everyday bird watchers. Birders are committed to searching for, counting, and documenting as many avian species as they can on any given day. Appropriately enough, Twitter is where they often document their finds and alert each other to rare sightings. Or tech-savvy ornithologists and birders rely on a birding app called eBird. And here to tell us about the intersection of tech and birding is Heather Wolf, a web developer with eBird and an author of her own birding book, Birding at the Bridge. Heather, welcome to 112BK. Thanks for having me. So first of all, who birds? What's the diversity like among birders? Uh, it's very diverse. I mean, all sorts of people, all age groups. Uh, uh, traditionally, birding is thought of as maybe reserved for retirees or people, you know, that that are older, but mm -hmm. really there's a whole wave of young birders. I've, I've met eight-year-old birders on my walks that are just so sharp and they're just so amazing and have great birding skills. So the range is from every, every age group, every walk of life, really. Now there's a huge birder community on Twitter mm -hmm. tweeting about birds. <laughs> It's kind of ironic. It really is. <laughs> uh, and I talk about it in the book, too, that I got a, a notice of a rare sighting on Twitter. So mm -hmm. if you check, and they do a lot, like in Central Park, there's a Bird Central Park channel. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, people watch Twitter for rare sightings of birds because a lot of people uh, pursue the rarities in our area. Definitely. What are the rarities in our area? Well, I mean, uh, interesting sparrows, uh, also mm. rails. I had a Sora rail in, in my park, Brooklyn Ridge Park, is my patch where I bird. Uh, that mm. showed up once, and it brought birders from even outside of, of New York City to come see this bird. A lot of people, mm. as you probably know, keep bird lists, and they keep a life list. Yes. Some people keep a state list, a park list, a county list. So. It, you can go as fine-grained as you want. So if people don't have it, say, for their state list or their county list, they would come over, you know, to a place where a bird is being sighted to and get it. And have it on their life exactly. list. Exactly. Oh, my God, yes. I really like that. <laughs> 
Um, where does the intersection happen between scientists and hobbyists? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, scient scientists and hobbyists, you mean as far as birders? Are yes, absolutely. Birders. Yeah, I mean, birders are uh, citizen scientists at the moment. They're recording birds. And mm -hmm. I, like you mentioned, I do work for eBird at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Mm -hmm. And we encourage people to enter their bird sightings. Um, but whether you're entering them in eBird or even just keeping your own journal, that that is science. You're documenting what you see, you're keeping a list. And then hobbyists, I would say, don't necessarily keep a list, but they could certainly turn into scientists very easily by contributing what they know and what they've seen. I like that a lot. <laughs> and I like the idea that when I see interesting things in nature and record it, that I'm doing science. Is exactly. that doing science? It's doing science. Uh, yes. I am a mad scientist. You are. So That's I'm great. looking forward to this my entire <laughs> life. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about eBird mm -hmm. and what it does for birders and for scientists. Right. eBird is amazing. So I, I've been working for Cornell Lab of Ornithology for about two and a half years. Mm -hmm. But I started using eBird in 2010, I believe. And I found it was a great way not only to keep track of sightings, but also to to find out where the birds are. And mm -hmm. I always, I teach classes on birding and I encourage people, even if you don't feel comfortable entering lists or you're not sure what the birds are, you can see where birds are being sighted, what mm -hmm. types of birds are being sighted in your neighborhood, your local parks. So it's a great way to discover mm -hmm. the birds near you or wherever you're going, if you're going on a trip or anything like that. All of the data that people enter, uh, we use that, well, you know, at the lab, scientists use that to uh, inform conservation efforts. Mm -hmm. uh, we can tell about distribution of birds, areas where birds are declining and increasing, and important uh, migration stopovers. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, it's pretty amazing, um, the volume of data. At eBird, we have uh, 500 million records now. Earlier this 500 year, we hit million half records? a billion. Yeah, we hit half a billion in March. Yes. Wow, that's a lot of data. It, it's a lot. It, it's, it really is, and it's great. And uh, we, we need more. We always need more. <laughs> well, as the climate changes, one mm -hmm. of the things that's happening and one of the things that I think you can see from this data is so do the migration paths of mm -hmm. different birds. Right. Can you tell me how huge impacts to the environment actually affect birds? Well, I mean, you have you, a lot of people are seeing birds arriving to a location and they expect, uh, you know, a certain timing of insects or fruit or things like this. And because because when things warm up, that may be thrown off a bit. So it does affect the food sources. And also, of course, how, you know, boreal habitats uh, up in the Arctic, you know, places where birds winter and spend the winters, mm -hmm. it, they need those conditions to survive. A lot of birds, you know, birds are very adaptable. They can adjust, but it's, it remains to be seen how long they can keep this up and how adaptable they'll be over time. Well, what is bird fallout? That's a great question. I told I told my friend the other day there was going to be fallout, and he got very worried. I said mm. bird fallout. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, fallout is when uh, birds run into say rough rough weather, and mm -hmm. they have to basically stop their migration, and they just fall out of the sky. So uh, that can result, uh, well, it's basically a birder's dream because it results in hundreds of birds in a location. Uh, I know one of these just recently happened in the Gulf Coast where I had started birding. Mm -hmm. And uh, you basically have birds everywhere on the ground and they're, they're fueling up, they're eating, they're foraging, and they, they can't leave until the weather conditions are you know, conducive to taking flight and, and resuming their journey. So what does it have to do with the hurricanes we've been experiencing? Mm -hmm. Like, what does it do 
for a bird's migration path. It doesn't just pause it, right? Right. It inter- it interrupts it because they basically will get a little. They they may get you know a, steered a little bit off course depending right. on how the winds are going. So often it can mm-hmm. funnel the birds into a very high concentration in certain areas, mm-hmm. and that's what often happens in the Gulf Coast. And you get these high concentrations of birds, but it it basically delays their migration, so they'll have to stop. They were on their way, but they have an unexpected stopover. What are some of the birds we can see right here around Brooklyn, weather permitting? Exactly. So right here and right now, today, is uh, a great day. And I'd say this week is great for ruby-crowned kinglet and golden crown kinglet. These are tiny birds, about three to four inches. Mm-hmm. They they are constantly moving and foraging, eating insects, and um, they're all over right now. Also, right now in the fall is a great time for sparrows. So mm-hmm. we have white crown sparrows, field sparrows, things like that. Um, yes, and really, uh, the other day in Brooklyn Bridge Park, I had 40 species, so they're all, all different kinds. Um, someone saw a yellow-billed cuckoo, which I missed the other day, but that's a great bird that was here. A yellow-billed cuckoo? Yeah, yellow-billed cuckoo. We get yellow-billed and black-billed cuckoo here during migration. Really? Yeah, and migration is the best time, so that was one of the mistakes I made when I started birding. I started in Florida, and I would go out in the middle of summer looking for birds and trees, and I didn't understand the timing of migration, but if you know, uh, and that an eBird helps you with that because it tells you the time of year uh, when these birds are coming through with bar charts. But uh, right now is great, and also spring, of course. In the spring, the birds are coming up here to breed, uh, and then right now they're heading back down to South America and the Caribbean and things like that. If I'm going to get into birding, mm-hmm. okay, I'd like to be down with the lingo. Mm-hmm. So what's a get? A get, like to get a bird? Yeah, like... I know that like there's a get and there's like a lifer right, and like right. there are these short term, these I, shorthand terms. I guess so. When I say I got a bird, I, I yeah. got I got the kinglet or I got the sora. That you, you use that for a rare bird or right. um, some some birders use I dipped on the on the green tailed towhee. We don't get green tailed towhee here, yeah. but dipped means I missed out on it. Oh. That's the lingo. Yeah. Also, um, twitchers are people that chase rare birds that's known (laughs) and i I used to do that i don't really have time to do it but i'm sure at some point i'll get back into that and they get in their cars and um, sometimes you know chase rarities in a four-hour drive or whatever so i'm gonna put you on the spot with this last question and ask you what bird i most remind you of oh my gosh well i mean you're dressed in red so Mm -hmm. the initial the initial thought is a cardinal, and I saw one of those today. So that's what you remind me of. A cardinal. Oh, and that's the state bird of Indiana, where oh, I'm from. Oh, wonderful, Just wonderful. Saying. Thank you so much for your time. This has sure. been so interesting, and I've really enjoyed oh, our conversation. thanks so much for having me, likewise. Thank you, Heather. Thanks. They say laughter is the best medicine, and anyone who's been caregiver to someone suffering from Alzheimer's knows a little levity and perspective on the subject can go a long way. That's what a new play at the Billie Holiday Theater in Brooklyn seeks to provide. It's called Dot, and it explores mental health in the black community as a family fights to balance care for their mother while caring for themselves. Here's a brief snippet. 
more about the performance, we recently spoke with two of the actors playing Dot's children, Tanache Kajese Bolden, who plays Shelly, and Amber A. Harris, who plays Avery. Check it out. Can I ask you, Tanache, mm -hmm. what made you want to be part of a production like this? Well, uh, Coleman Domingo, who wrote the play, mm -hmm. is an incredible actor and uh, director in his own right, and I've been a huge fan of his work for many years. And so when there was the opportunity to be in this play, I was just excited to be able to say his words mm -hmm. because I think a lot of playwrights that have been on the other side of the table and been actors, they write in a way that's just exciting for us and it's right. playable things and scenes and scenarios. So it's a very acrobatic experience, which is fun. Oh, I like that word. <laughs> How about you, Amber? Well, uh, Kenny was attached to it <laughs> for mm -hmm. me, so right. that's why I wanted to be a part of the production and to get my feet wet. I just literally moved back to Atlanta maybe about seven months prior to auditioning. Mm -hmm. I was like, I need to perform here in the city, right. and I wanted it to be with Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater. So I auditioned, and I booked it. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. You know, when you speak it. Hey. It'll happen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As actors, do you draw from personal experiences to help your characters to Nasha? I think you can't help but draw from who you are and your mm -hmm. own experiences. But um, there's also a place where you have to let go the parts that don't resonate with the character. But for me, I mean, this is a story ultimately for Shelley's perspective of a relationship with her mother and with mm -hmm. her siblings. And I've got a mom and I've got siblings. So right. it's funny when I'm hearing myself say things on stage that I feel like I've said <laughs> in real mm -hmm. life or right. vice versa. And that's mm -hmm. when it gets a little creepy. I bet. <laughs> I bet. And, and, and Amber, what do you have from your own life that helps you create Avery? Uh, fortunately and unfortunately for some people, um, <laughs> I am Avery. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> I've embodied this character, but I think that, you know, sometimes roles come along that are just perfect for you. Oh, yes. And this role came at a time where I wasn't questioning me going back into acting, but I wanted something that I was comfortable with and low-key didn't have to work really hard. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. Avery is like, just go on stage and be yourself. But right. I also think that there's a... Um, a word that we use in theater, verisimilitude, where mm -hmm. theater mirrors life. And I feel like there are things in my life that have happened to mm -hmm. Avery as well. Right. And so we are really one in the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, we are oh, yeah, one in you the feel same. her. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, I think a lot of times when we start talking about the experiences of black folks, and particularly the centered stories mm -hmm. of black women, you know, there inevitably must come up these things that we deal with consistently right. and constantly mm -hmm. as a community. But I also know the way we deal with that most prevalently is humor. Right, absolutely. You know, that's what we do. We yeah. talk Crying. about it. Yep. <laughs> 
laugh to keep from crying. Right. Talk to me a little bit, Amber, about how important humor is to a show like this. Oh, well, because it can be so heavy at times, uh, Avery brings the laughter and it's needed. And right. her her timing is perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess that's Coleman's thing, you know, mm -hmm. since he wrote it, like it can get to a point where you're like, oh, oh no, oh no. And then Avery comes and does something and says something. And it takes you away from that right. heaviness that really is the, the through line to the show. Right. And I think that because in the black community, we don't really talk about mental health mm -hmm. and um, we think we can pray it away or, you know, sweep it under the rug. No, people need to deal with things by going to the doctor yes. and being medicated so they can live full lives. But also to know that if you do have mental health issues, it's all right to laugh about it. Yes. <laughs> laugh through it. It's okay. Yes. yes, yes. It's okay. And it's part of the healing process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Tanache. One of the things that um, really struck me about the idea of this play, because I haven't seen it yet, I'm so excited to see it, mm -hmm. but I haven't seen it yet, was just that it was dealing with specifically Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is something that I feel like among the people I know in my community, everybody has been touched by it in some way, whether it was a grandmother, a mother, mm -hmm. an auntie, a great aunt, mm -hmm. um, a friend of the family. Mm -hmm. It's like it's touched us somehow. Talk to me a little bit about the character Dot. So Dot is our uh, matriarch, and mm -hmm. she is a woman that was an activist in her youth. She was this fearless head of our family, mm -hmm. um, really was the, the crux of where a lot of the community would come and gather at the home. We, we talk about how the neighborhood has changed, but she was such a central part of the neighborhood and the kids growing up and was uh, the safe place to fall for a lot of the, the, the siblings and their friends. Oh, wow. um, and so what I think is really interesting about the direction that uh, Coleman wrote Dot and the way Kenny directed it is that she's not a character that feels sorry for herself. Mm. And so the fight is not over. And I think that's what the, uh, the a through line or a message is, is that even till the end, she doesn't succumb to the self-pity mm. um, of the realization of her disease. She is very um, active in fighting for this minute and fighting for this moment and trying to make the most of it. And that is the t that's the two sides of the pain and right. the joy of it too. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is a subject that we need to address more? Because as I've said, like, I, I don't see a lot of this. And I specifically don't see a lot of this centered around a black woman. There, there must be so many ways to tell this story, right? I, I think so. And I have to be honest that there was a lot of naivete on my own part when I took this play on. Mm -hmm. I have family members. My grandfather lost his battle with Alzheimer's the week oh. before we opened the show. Oh, I have wow. other relatives that had it. But what I did not know was the prevalence of it within mm -hmm. the African-American and the African community. I'm originally yes. from Zimbabwe. And yes. so I think that once we started talking about it as a cast, and it was unbelievable how many cast members had been affected mm -hmm. by this disease. Mm -hmm. And the more research I started doing and our collaboration with the... Um, Alzheimer's research um, there in Atlanta, I was really overwhelmed by how much we had isolated ourselves mm -hmm. and people just deal with it within their own family mm -hmm. structure and we don't talk about it. Yes. And what is so powerful, I think, and unique about theater is that we are the one art form that 
lifts up and reflects what's going on in the world we live in today mm. and draws a mirror to right. our community. Amber, can you tell me if I'm a person who wants to see the show, how do I come see the show? Oh, please go to the Billy Holiday Theater, billyholiday.org, I do believe, has your tickets on sale for the show starting October 20th through November 18th. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have matinees as well, so if you don't like to do the night thing, come and see us at 1030 some days mm -hmm. and or 2 p.m. for some days. But we will be there October 20th through November 18th. Correct. Thank you so much. Thank ladies. you for thank having us. Thank you for this platform and opportunity to talk thank to you. you. I appreciate it. This thank is you. amazing. Violence committed against black Americans goes back to the earliest days of our history. It reached its height in the years between the Civil War and World War II, with 3,446 lynchings of African Americans. And those are just the ones that were officially recorded. Violence is still being perpetrated today, of course, in the form of highly publicized police shootings. Drawing a line between the two is the aim of photographer and artist John Henry, who stages images of black mothers and their slain sons for a project called Stranger Fruit. It can be seen here at Brick House through October 28th. Recently, our Brick Radio team and the exhibit's curator, Saul Nova, sat down with John Henry. Here's that conversation. As I hold my son in my arms, there is nothing strange about him. He is indeed the fruit of my womb, the extension of his father and me, growing, stretching, reaching to the skies. There is nothing strange about him. Uh, my name is John Henry. I'm an artist from Brooklyn, New York, usually working in visual art, typically photography. The project Stranger Fruit began in 2014 and began as a response to the murders of African-American men due to police violence. More than 200 people have been arrested in a day of protest over the acquittal of three police officers and the killing of Sean Bell. The morning of the verdict, those images from the newspaper uh, stayed with me forever. The 23-year-old Bell died in a hail of 50 police bullets the morning of what would have been his wedding day in November of 2006. Later that year in October, my good friend was getting married and I was one of the groomsmen, and at the bachelor party, that's all I could think of, was what if this was happening to him? What if this was happening to us? 2014 was when it actually all came together. Stranger Fruit comes off of the Billie Holiday song, Strange Fruit, but it was really the Nina Simone song that I connected with more. Strange Fruit is, um, as they describe, southern bodies hanging from the poplar tree in the antebellum south, basically speaking to lynchings. With Stranger Fruit, people aren't getting lynched anymore, but they're literally getting picked off the street. Lynching was such a common thing, and now it's like these shootings have become commonplace, you know, where we've almost become numb to it. Every image has its own uh, story. It's kind of a, just right on a street corner in New Jersey in front of a closed-down cleaners. Ebony in the middle with her pink shirt that says awake on it, holding up her son, flanked by her two younger sons on each side, one holding his head, the other one supporting his legs, all of them staring into camera. One of the things I use in the photo is the gaze, the mother looking into the viewer, 
makes it a lot harder to look away. For a, a long time while I was working on the project, something wasn't right. There was still another piece that was missing to make it complete. While I was in Chicago, Nefertiti from Parkchester, New York, she had reposted the image that we made the previous year on Facebook, and she had written this amazing poem. As I hold my son in my arms, there is nothing strange about him. The second I saw the poem, it was like, you know, I got hit with a bullet. There was nothing strange about him. It just stopped me dead in my tracks, and that instant I knew this was the final chapter of the piece. It was the text, the text from the mothers. There is nothing strange about him. He is my son, he is my soul, and he is beautiful. There are a couple more locations that I have to photograph in before I can really say it's finished. Um, in particular, be in Minneapolis this winter. I just have you know these images burned in my head of the black bodies in the snow, but also Minneapolis, St. Paul is the home of Target. So just thinking of the possibilities with the red bullseye, Texas, Nebraska, maybe you know like a handful of other locations. But uh, because yeah, I could shoot Stranger Fruit forever, but trust me, I do not want to. <laughs> what does justice look like? Um, I really don't know. Um, I mean, just thinking of these these crimes, I mean, there there is no justice. Even if you lock the police officer up for life, that's not bringing somebody's son back. That's not bringing someone's kid back. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I don't know what justice is in, in these terms. I mean, it's supposed to be blind, supposed to be equal, but the track record for justice isn't that great. Last year, Megan Daly, owner of Daly Pie, began intensive treatment for breast cancer. Though she's now through with her treatment, she faces a new battle, keeping her Prospect Heights pie shop from closing. Daly has always prioritized her employees' salaries over other bills, but even though she says her landlords have given her, have given her a lot of extra time to catch up, Daly still must pay the remaining $6,000 she owes in back rent or be evicted. This challenge happens to fall during October's National Breast Cancer Awareness Month and just before Daily Pie's busiest period, Thanksgiving. To keep her doors open and her staff employed, she's asking neighbors and pie lovers to help her meet her deadline by pre-ordering their Thanksgiving pies today. Visit dailypie.com order. That's D-A-L-Y to check out the selection of delicious pies. Whole pies range from $33 to $35. Sounds like a steal. A video titled Cornerstone Carolyn, which documents an incident that happened last Wednesday in Flatbush, has gone viral. It shows a white woman calling the cops on a black child, accusing him of sexually assaulting her. She also said she was a cop. Every one of those claims has been debunked. So what exactly happened? 
Surveillance video shows the kid bumping into the woman with a grocery bag. The NYPD says they received no calls from that area, and there is no officer with her name on the force. The woman has since apologized, but she's still part of a recent and disturbing trend of white people who've made false or frivolous complaints against black people. It's the Great Pumpkin in Fort Greene. The 20th annual Great Pumpkin Dog Costume Contest is back this year on Saturday, October 27th. The contest welcomes the cute and simple and the crazy and elaborate, according to Kath Hansen, the contest founder. She wants everyone to know that even if you don't dress up your dog, you should come see the show. The contest starts at 11.30 on Saturday the 27th and will take place in Fort Greene Park by the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument Stairs. And finally, let's throw some shade. There are two large projects proposed for Franklin Avenue between Empire Boulevard and President Street in Crown Heights. And both are being opposed because of the potential shadows they would cast on the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. The new buildings, designed to rise 27 stories, would be situated about a block from Ebbets Field Houses and across the street from Medgar Evers College and Jackie Robinson Playground. While the BBG is not taking an official position on this rezoning, and it sent no representatives to a public hearing in September, an email from the BBG to its members says it will monitor any potential impact, like maybe how it plans to get heavy into shade gardening. 112BK is back tomorrow with two reporters talking about the United Nations' recent and frankly terrifying report on climate change, what it could mean to New York City, and what we can all do to make sure my home state of Indiana doesn't end up with a coastline. Thanks for watching. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Kritzi Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>